amongst all these different copies. So uh, it's very typical that people would say uh, the accuracy with which we have the Bible is probably high 90 percentages. Uh, high 90 percent is what we're looking at. So like 97 percent, it's, it's accurate, and you're like, oh, well, what about those variations? The variations that we have in the Bible are very small variations. And typically, the variations that we see is in the original language, there's maybe a letter missing or something like that. So it, what, we, what we know is that uh, it, it has very minimal effect. There's no major doctrines that are affected by these variations in the manuscripts. So at Center Church, we believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. So that's a good theological word, the inerrancy of the Bible. And up until the mid-17th century, that was, inerrancy was basically unanimous. That it wasn't really even debated at all. It just was assumed that the Bible was inerrant. Now the definition of inerrancy is basically uh, the original manuscripts contained no error. So those autographs, when they were initially written, that they contained no error. That God spoke in and through individuals to uh, communicate his word, the ways in which he wanted to reveal himself to humanity. So Paul's letters that he wrote to Corinth or Ephesus or Rome, uh, there were initial autographs, but what we're reading are the copies, but copies that have amazing uh, accuracy, commonality, similarity uh, to other copies. Now, we hold the inerrancy here uh, at Center Church. To not hold to inerrancy uh, raises a whole host of questions regarding the reliability of God and his word. So it's, it's really an all or nothing thing. Like either uh, you believe the Bible, you take it at its word, or, or you reject it. Now, this story in John would be one of those variants. So when it says that the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses, what it's saying is that the earliest manuscripts that we have of those copies, most of them do not contain this. Some of them do, but it, it's a very small number that do. And sometimes uh, the manuscripts have this story located in other spots. Like other parts in John, actually, it's also lo located in Luke as well. And so um, that is what, is what it means when it says the earliest manuscripts um, do not include these verses. Now, if you guys want to talk to me more about this, I'd love to have uh, further conversation with you regarding it. Um, so if there was a pastor that, that would say, I'm, because of that, I'm not going to preach these verses, I would be completely fine with that. I have chosen to preach it. Um, as there is, uh, among scholars, there is consensus that this likely happened. So maybe it didn't happen at this point in the story of the Gospel of John, but there's consensus that it probably happened. And what we see of Jesus in these verses is consistent with what we see of him throughout the Bible. So it's not like there's a new doctrine that's being introduced here. It, it fits right in line with, other, uh, with the rest of the Bible. And so that's, that's part of the reason why I am going to preach it today. So I'm going to read these verses, and uh, then we're going to make a number of observations about them. So John 7:53 reads this way. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. 
all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Okay, so because it's unlikely that this story happened right here in the Gospel of John, what I'm not going to do this morning is kind of try and draw parallels to say this is where we were and this is where we're going. I'm going to kind of preach this as a standalone text. So I'm, I'm not going to contextualize within the Gospel of John. It's just kind of a standalone sermon within this series. So a quick summary here of what's going on in these verses. The text begins with things happening the night prior. So people had gone to their houses. Jesus had gone to the Mount of Olives. So uh, if we think about this, it's basically saying that Jesus is homeless, right? So his, his house is much further north uh, in Israel, but here he's basically homeless, and no one's opening up their home for him. So one thing we can kind of glean from this is that the road to glory is oftentimes not glorious. The road to glory is oftentimes not glorious. Yet, Jesus' opponents, we'll see this even here, were infatuated with the temporary glory that they had as teachers. They loved the, the respect that they were given socially within their culture. They loved the power and their positions that they held. Um, but they're not going to want to walk the road that Jesus was having to walk. So Jesus comes back then the next day, and he's going to teach in the temple. Now, I think it's safe to say that at this point in his ministry, wherever it would fall, that uh, Jesus was not looked upon with regard. People weren't looking at him and saying, oh man, I really like that dude. At least not this group of people. For sure there were some, but not this group of people that he's interacting with here. And so what they wanted to do was they wanted to test Jesus. Really what they wanted to do is they wanted to catch him in his words. So what they were doing is they're trying to create a scenario where it would back him into a corner and whatever answer he's going to give to their question, it would be a lose-lose for him. If he, if he chose this way, he's going to lose. If, you, if he answers this way, that it's not going to turn out well for him. So they bring this woman before him who has been caught in adultery and they ask him this question which they think is going to be a trap for him. But Jesus sees through the ploy and he ends up implicating the very people that are seeking to implicate him. Jesus' answer drives the woman's accusers away 
and it leaves Jesus with this woman alone. And what he does is he speaks life into her, and he sends her on her way. Okay, so we're going to make a few observations about what's going on here. I want to talk about Jesus' opponents here and the woman. I want to talk about the test that's being applied to Jesus, and then I want to talk about his reply to his opponents. So those are the three things we're going to talk about this morning. So first of all, let's look at Jesus' opponents and the woman. So Jesus' opponents are labeled in verse 3 as the scribes and the Pharisees. So we could make a summary statement here, and we could say that these are the religious leaders of the day, the religious authorities. And, and that's true, but what I want to do is press into this a little bit more to give us a little more understanding. Who are these scribes and who are these Pharisees that are opposing Jesus in this way? So the scribes, they basically were professionals when it came to the law of Moses. Maybe they loved it, maybe they didn't love it. Uh, it would be different for all of them, but they were the professionals of the law of Moses. So think, they knew the Ten Commandments. Uh, they knew all the laws that we read about in, especially the first five books of the Old Testament. And you're probably thinking, man, I'm really jealous of these people. I wish I could memorize Leviticus or Numbers. Like, that, that was their gig. That's what they did. They were the experts when, they came, when it came to the law of Moses. So they were kind of this mix of a lawyer, a theologian, and an ethics professor. That, that's kind of a mix of all those different things is what they were about. And then we have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were basically a religious or a political party. So they would look at the law and they'd say, we want everyone to follow this to the hilt. Maybe the scribes, there were some scribes who'd be like, I don't really love the law, but it's my profession, so I'm going to know it really well. But the Pharisees were really interested in applying the law, making sure that it was followed because they had a supreme view of Moses' law. So Pharisee, the word Pharisee means separated one. And this is what they wanted to do. They wanted to separate themselves from, the other, from other Jewish people to, to show that they were better, that they followed the law better. They revered the law in a greater way than all other people. So they're trying to raise the standard. So you think about them, probably not your, like your cultural trendsetters. They're probably, you probably wouldn't describe these guys as cosmopolitan, probably not at all. Um, they, were, they were very focused on kind of conservative values and following the laws. So the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, they would at times run in the same circles, probably a lot of times, but a scribe wasn't necessarily a Pharisee, and a Pharisee wasn't necessarily a scribe. But we do know that these men loved their positions and their power, which is also why they wanted to rid themselves of Jesus because he was a threat to their positions and he was a threat to the power that they possessed. Okay, so these, those are Jesus' opponents. Let's talk a little bit about the woman. We don't know much at all regarding the woman, but we do know that she is accused of adultery. She's accused of adultery. So the religious elite, those who are uh, the, the followers of the law, who revere the law in a great way, would view her as morally repugnant. Okay? 
She is morally repugnant in the eyes of the religious elite. And that's basically what we know about her, right? But one thing we should note here. She didn't commit this act by herself, okay? So where's the man? Because he is every bit as guilty as she is. Why is he absent? Did, did he possess like this cat-like quickness that allowed him to escape when she couldn't and so they were able to grab her but he was gone and, and out? Um, did he hold an important position? And, and so in some way these guys were looking out for him and, and it, would look bad upon, it would look bad for them and it, if, if he was reflected on in a negative way at some point. Did he hold a, an important position and so they didn't want him to be implicated in the same way and so they're, they're like, she's a female. She has less value in that culture so we're just going to put her through the ringer. Did, did this man even exist? Did, did he even exist? Or is this all a fabrication? We don't, don't know exactly but from Jesus' words, I think we can assume based on what he says to her, we can assume that it was a real scenario that happened. Is this woman more guilty because she's female? Is this, uh, is there just kind of some chauvinism going on here, which was pretty rampant in that culture? We don't know exactly, but we do read in verse 6 that the woman was brought before Jesus as a test. They wanted to test him, so this much is clear. This woman is being used as an insignificant pawn in their selfish pursuit of their goals. So these men, they wanted to catch Jesus in a trap. They don't care. They don't care how it happens. They don't care who's hurt in the process. And so this woman seems like it's a convenient way to try and trap him. And it, really, they're not going to care if she gets hurt, if there's collateral damage with her. They just want to catch Jesus in his words. They want to trap him, and so this woman seems like a good excuse. So we can know that this woman is being used. Guilty she may be, but she is being abused and used in this way. So if we look at these two parties, okay, you've got the woman, and you've got Jesus' opponents. If you think about them, who would you expect that Jesus would side with. You've got this morally repugnant woman, right, who is known as the sinner. And you've got these religious elite who are really focused on following God's law. If you look at them, I think most of us would, would just assume, well, of course, Jesus is going to side with these other men. We know that they're his opponents, right? They want to get rid of him. But if, if we had a modern-day example of this, oftentimes I think that we would just assume that Jesus is going to side with the religious elite or the religious folk, whoever that might be. But Jesus does not side with the impressive-looking, law-memorizing, educated religious elite here. They do not impress God. It reminds me of the verses we read earlier from Mark 2, which this story is also recorded in Luke 5. So what's happening in this story is that Jesus is eating with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. Um, 
and the scribes and the Pharisees who are at this meal, there's also some of them, they're grumbling at the fact that Jesus is eating with these reprehensible people. They're asking, why does he eat with them? And Jesus replies, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we've got these opponents of Jesus. We've got this woman who kind of bring up this scenario for us that it's kind of like if we hadn't already read through the story, if maybe we didn't know the story, if you haven't been in church for a long time and you, you knew how this story would turn out, you might wonder, what's really going to go down here? And so let's explore uh, what's going to happen with Jesus' opponents and this woman. So next thing uh, I want to look at is the test that is applied to Jesus. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they bring this shamed woman in front of Jesus so that they might test him. Uh, We've already talked about she's guilty of adultery, all right? And the scribes and Pharisees are referencing the law of Moses. And they say, see, look at that. Moses says that because she has done this that we should stone her. And so they ask Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? So they are quoting, the scribes and Pharisees are working from Deuteronomy 22. So I'm going to read a number of verses here from Deuteronomy 22. Verse 22 says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. And then verses 23 and 24 If there is a betrothed virgin, we could think engaged, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out and stone them to death. And stone them to death. So reading these three verses here, we might assume that this woman is betrothed. Maybe she's a betrothed virgin because they're saying that she should be stoned. So that's what we're reading about, not in verse 22, but in verses 23 and 24. So when we read this part of these verses, the the whole idea of uh, stoning someone for their sin, I think in our current context, we can think about that and be like, man, that is harsh. That is harsh. And it is harsh. And so we're, we're faced with this dilemma. What is God all about? Like, what does this tell us about God? And, and so, um, a tendency, I think, for a lot of us can be, man, God is brutal. Like, I don't want to follow that God. Maybe the New Testament God, where, where it's grace and, and kindness and love, like, like, I'm for that. But this stoning of somebody, like, that is brutal. And, and I don't know if I want any part of that. What we know about God, what we know about Him is that he communicated clearly with his people. He laid out these expectations and standards for them. He said, if you sin in this way, this is uh, the penalty for that crime. And so it's not as though someone would sin in this way and then they're like, oh shoot, I didn't know about that. Can I take a hall pass on that one? Right, like his people, the Jewish people, knew about this. And so the intention for them is that they would understand God hates sin. 
He hates sin. This is what sin does to us. It brutalizes us. It wants to destroy us. And so God doesn't want us to go down this path to to think that he is a brutal God. He wants us to go down a path where we understand that he cares deeply about his creation. That this is what sin will do to us. It will brutalize us. And, and this fact that God hates sin. Like it, it just can't be in his presence. And, and really, if we think about this and the whole stoning that happened with, uh, or supposed stoning or alleged stoning that could happen in this kind of situation, uh, if we look at Jesus, he was beaten to death, right? He, he gets this. He has walked that path. So here's this predicament that Jesus finds himself in. If he says to stone this woman, it's going to seem to people that he's undermining some of his previous teaching. Because what Jesus has done thus far is he's, he's healing people. Right? He's speaking life. He's giving life to people. He's extending love. He's feeding people. He turns water into wine and allows people to have a great time at a wedding celebration. So these are the things that Jesus is doing. For him to now say, stone this woman, there's this reality that some people are going to think that he's undermining his previous teaching. Furthermore, if he says to stone this woman, what's going to happen is that these scribes and Pharisees, they're going to go to the Roman authorities because nothing can happen under their purview. And so if Jesus is saying, stone this woman, they're going to take that report, they're going to go to the Roman authorities and say, this dude wants to stone this woman. He's trying to take punishment into his own hands. He is trying to create his own court of law. And so, they think then that they'll be able to deal with Jesus, that they can catch him in this trap if he says, stone this woman. If he doesn't, if he says, don't stone this woman, then what he's going to be doing is disagreeing with Moses. Up to this point in John, Jesus has been able to kind of draw lines between himself and Moses to suggest that he is a greater, better Moses. But at the same time, he's, he sought to, to draw, cor- draw correlations between himself and Moses. He's not doing this brand new thing that has no connection to Moses. He's coming to fulfill what Moses had instituted. He's coming to fulfill the law. So if Jesus says, don't stone her, people are going to look at him and say, he's lawless. He doesn't follow the law that we know that God gave to us. So this is his predicament. If he, does, if he says stone her, if he says don't stone her, it seems like he is trapped. But with Jesus, he's God, right? And what we read happening here is very God-like. That he finds a way out of this scenario that frustrates his opponents that cares for the woman, yet still calls out her sin as well. So Jesus' reply, his reply is, first of all, it says that he gets down on the ground and he writes on the ground with his finger. There has been a ton of speculation throughout history. Ah, what is he writing? And there's probably some symbolism there, right? But 
I, I would prefer to de-emphasize what he might be writing there because we just don't know. And it's just conjecture. And it's kind of reading into the text whenever we might say this is what he is writing. And, and there's lots of good suggestions that uh, scholars have put forth to say, oh, he's referencing this Old Testament verse and so forth. But I think it's, it's wiser to de-emphasize what it is that he might be writing and focus on what it is that he's saying in this interaction. So verse 7, he says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Okay, so what Jesus is doing here is he's making another direct reference to the Old Testament law. So if someone witnessed a crime and, the crime, and they brought this person before the authorities. They accused them of this crime. They found out that this person was guilty of the crime, and, and it was in a situation where the person would be stoned. That person who made the accusation would be the first person to throw the stone. So that's what Jesus is saying here. If this woman did this, and you're guiltless, then take the stone, and you be the first one to throw it at her. But, if they are going to throw the stone, they must not be guilty of the crime. They must not be guilty of the crime. So what we see happening here is these accusers drop their stones and they walk away. So inherent is in this is that there must be some guilt in these individuals. They must be complicit, not in this woman's sin, but, but there is guilt in their own hearts regarding this sin. And so they drop their stones and they walk away. And what we see happening, the external shift from them being kind of bombastic in Jesus' face, uh, accusatory, to then dropping the stones, that external shift is pretty remarkable. And, and what Jesus is going for is not so much the external change, but what he wants is the internal change in these individuals. And then Jesus remarks in verses 10 and 11, says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Everyone has left. No one remains to condemn her. This is, uh, brings to mind John 3, uh, verses 17 and 18, which we talked about um, probably a couple months ago now. It reads, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The world, at that time, was filled with condemnation. And I think our experience would suggest we understand that our world is filled with condemnation as well. But we can look out, we can see hatred seething out of people. And, and honestly, we can look inside of ourselves and we can see hatred seething inside of us as well. We see fear that is rampant throughout our culture. 
We're chronic complainers. These are evidences of the fact that we live in a world that is broken, broken, fractured, and ultimately is condemned. We are a condemned people. And Jesus is saying that is why he has come, not to condemn us, but to show us that we are already condemned, and then to offer us salvation. How kind of him to do that, to come to his enemies. The fact that these people, that we are condemned, that we're condemned because we have rebelled against him, yet he comes to us with this gracious offer of salvation. So for us, because all of us live in this world that is rampant with condemnation, we need to wrestle with what is your conception of Jesus? What lurks in the shadows of your thoughts about who he is? Is he condemning? Is that, is what, is that what Jesus has come to do? Or has he come to save, to give life, to offer hope and peace amidst a world filled with condemnation? We have to see how he reveals himself. When you view Jesus in such a way that he is bringing condemnation upon you, we have to press into that and understand, where does that come from? Is that a daddy issue? Like, is this something we saw in our dad? Our dad spoke really condemning words. Is that where that comes from? Because that's not the picture that we get from Jesus. He has not come to condemn, but to save. And so we need to let Jesus speak for himself in this. Let him reveal himself to us. So Jesus then says here, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. We talked about this phrase uh, a while back, but this this instruction has an aspect of impossibility. No one is going to leave here and not sin. Before we get to our cars, we might be sinning. Probably will be sinning. So there's this reality that it's impossible. But part of this too is that we must rely on Jesus. If we are going to walk from here and live in this command, to try to live out this command, to go and sin no more, the only way for that to happen is that we rely upon Jesus. We live in him. We trust in him. And and so in this call that Jesus gives to this woman of go and sin no more, we have to understand that there's a call for us. There's a call for us to turn away from our sin. So it's not just like, oh, well, it's not as though I can't sin, so be casual about our sin. There is a call in this for us to turn from our sin. God hates sin, and he calls us to turn away from it and to turn to him because Jesus comes to defeat sin's hold on us so that we are not condemned, so that we don't have to walk through our lives having this onerous weight upon us, thinking, feeling that we are condemned. How can I escape this weight of condemnation? Jesus has already taken that upon himself. And so 
we go to Jesus. We listen to him as he says, stop condemning yourself. Stop living in the condemnation that is is rampant in this world. Come to me. Let me free you from that. Let me allow you to find joy and hope amidst all of this messy condemnation. So what we see in Jesus here is that he has come to love the unlovable. This woman is unlovable by most people in the culture, especially by those who are bringing her in front of Jesus. Jesus has come to love the unlovable all while not excusing her sin. So there's nothing in him that's saying, uh, we'll just brush that aside. He's not excusing her sin, but he is coming to love the unlovable. And at the same time, he's doing all these things, he's also exposing the sin of the religious leaders. Remember Luke 5 that we talked about earlier Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician. Jesus is not saying that these scribes and Pharisees are well, as though they are not sinful. Nor would he say that about us. All of us are sick. The problem is they were thinking they were righteous. We oftentimes may think that we are righteous because we might compare ourselves to the next person rather than comparing ourselves to Jesus. So they didn't see their sickness, their sin. We likewise oftentimes don't see our sickness and sin as well. But what Jesus is teaching is that all humanity is sin sick. That we're all plagued by this disease. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are plagued by the sickness of sin? That that is the greatest disease that you have to fight, that you wrestle with. Our sin is repulsive in God's sight. It's hideous, it's vile, it's abhorrent in the sight of God. So we can't diminish or justify our sin. We can't lessen it in any way. Our hearts, like this woman is being portrayed, our hearts are also morally repugnant. And, and if it's not adultery for us, then it's, it's lies or it's seething anger, it's pride or it's envy, it's laziness, it's something. Now, this is saying that we're morally repugnant, but if you're anything like me, it's, it's a lot easier to find other people who are morally repugnant rather than looking at myself. When we view someone as morally repugnant, as less than us, what is our reactions? Whether it be in our minds or behind a screen as we read something on our computers or our phones or whether we're face-to-face with somebody, our reactions oftentimes are that we could verbally or intellectually undress or shame somebody. We'll hate people. And I've done this many times. What we do is we fight hate with hate. 
We fight hate with hate. And then what we'll do is we'll just justify our hate because we'll say it's, it's more righteous than theirs is. Right? But where does this lead? This is just a vicious cycle. If we fight hate with hate, it just ends with people getting killed. People being obliterated, being destroyed. But this is not, not what we see in Jesus. This is not how he interacts with those he sees as morally repugnant. And, and this is our gospel application. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Another way we could say that is Jesus is a friend of his enemies. Jesus is a friend of his enemies. This is, this is both moving and offensive, right? So if we think about the fact that we are morally repugnant, we are the sinners, the fact that Jesus would be our friend, that's moving, right? The fact that he would love us when we did not deserve that love. But when we think about the fact that Jesus calls us then to love our enemies in the way that he has loved us, that's when it becomes offensive, right? Because that is hard. That is brutally hard. But, but this picture that we get of Jesus is just stark. There is no one like him. He is so good. To know God in this way, the fact that he would act this way towards us is the only way that we'll be able to love others. It's the only way that we'll be able to have even common decency towards our enemies. And the danger here for us is that we would view ourselves to be like the, the scribes and the Pharisees that we would not view ourselves as the morally repugnant sinners. Jesus is saying he is the friend to those people. So when we view ourselves as the better than, whoever it might be in our lives, when they are less than us, we are distancing ourselves from those that Jesus says he is a friend of. We are saying we are more like Jesus in and of ourselves or on our own than we are like the morally repugnant sinners. So, the press for us is who is a sinner? Who is an enemy in your eyes? To love the downtrodden is one thing, but to love an enemy, that's that's a big deal. That is a punch in the gut. Now, loving an enemy doesn't necessarily advocate for someone's beliefs. It's not advocating for their sin or even their positions. Jesus certainly was not advocating for the behavior of this woman. I mean, the fact that he had to take a beating upon himself, that he had to be killed for the very things that she was about to be killed for. So we see this exchange going on here. Jesus ultimately is going to take upon himself what that woman deserved in that moment. That's the great exchange that's going on. That's the exchange that all of us receive from Jesus when we trust in him. Jesus did not come 
to condemn. So who are we? Who are we to condemn whoever it might be, whoever it is that we might hate, whoever it is that might be our enemy, our call? Our call as Christians is to love others, enemy or best friend, in the way that Jesus has loved us. Because he, he's loved us in such a vast way. We have this massive reservoir to draw from that we then, as hard as it might be, as much as we might not want to, we are called to love those who think differently than us, who behave differently than us. And that is the call upon our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are a friend of sinners.